But that's what, I, yeah, I'm off to a wonderful start so far. But it's, it's been a few weeks, all right? Give me a break. But that's what that means. And a pastor that I heard once, uh, I heard him say that if you want to get people into your church, if you want to attract a crowd, then what you need to preach on is sex in the end times. That's a guaranteed crowd grabber. That will bring people into your church for sure. But then he said that if you want people to run out of your church, if you want to never see them again, then you will preach on one of two things or, or even maybe both. You will teach on or you'll preach on sin and divorce. And last week Ethan had sin, this week I've got divorce, so we'll see. We already see it. there's a smaller crowd than last week, right? <laughs> but my brothers and sisters, this, this is a difficult topic. It's a difficult topic, and it's one that is often very emotionally charged, right? But as one of the pastors of Redeemer Church, and if you're committed to Redeemer Church as your pastor, it is my job. And it is my responsibility to teach you unashamedly the Word of God. It is my job to not make you necessarily feel good, and it is not my job to, to tickle your fancies. My job is to expound this holy Word that has been God-breathed. And my prayer is that my preaching, before it does anything else, puts a smile on God's face. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, my next prayer is that you are brought into a deeper joy, a deeper joy through understanding more of God and understanding more of His Word. That's my job before anything else. And so I wanted to lay all of that out there before we dive in to this passage, because again, it is difficult. It is hard. And to sinful and fallen man, it is controversial. It's controversial. But not to God. To God, this is not a controversial passage in the least, but to us who still struggle with sin, it is. But what is our goal as Christians? Brothers and sisters, Romans 12, 2, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, to conform our thinking, to align our beliefs to that of God's, and that includes what our beliefs are on divorce. We must submit it all to Him and His Word, all of it. Now, all that being said, I will admit, I am giving myself a slight out this week. And the reason is because if we are to understand Jesus' words about divorce, then we must have a clear and firm understanding of God's definition of marriage and what marriage represents. And if we are to understand biblical marriage, we must first understand that, that marriage is what? It's a covenant. It is a covenant, and in order to understand what that means, we must first have an understanding of the massive significance of what biblical covenants are. And that is what we're going to be focusing on today. We're going to be looking at the concept of covenants and why they are essential to the relationship between God and man, so that next week we can see the significance of the covenant of marriage, so that the following week we can have a far stronger foundation for understanding Jesus' words about 
divorce, which ultimately is the dissolution of the marriage covenant. And so I hope that you stick with me over these next three weeks, because whether you are single, whether you are engaged or married, a divorcee or widowed, there is something here for you to glean. There is something here for you to learn about the God of the covenants. But before we dive into this heavy topic, this topic that is, that is packed full, let us pray for guidance, wisdom, and understanding. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. It is, it is such a wonderful privilege. And Father, as always, God, I pray that you open the eyes of our hearts to the truth that you would have us learn this morning. And Father, I, I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear your truth and you give us minds to understand it and that you continue to conform our minds and our hearts to you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Well, one of the most important things that you need to know about covenants is that they are foundational. They are essential to the entirety of divine revelation, the Bible. In fact, as one theologian says, covenants are they're, they're the glue that holds the Bible together. It's the glue that holds our Bibles together. But there is still a lot of confusion in many Christian minds as to what a covenant is, let alone the role that they play within not just the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament, but also in God's relationship with those in the church today. There's a lot of confusion there. And so our first order of business this morning, before we do, before we do anything else, is to get a definition of a biblical covenant so that we can, we can try to wipe away as much confusion about this topic that there may be. And so I'm going to use J.I. Packer's definition, which I'm pretty sure it's already on the screen behind me. All right, perfect. Good job, man. But J.I. Packer's definition of a covenant is this. Covenants in Scripture are solemn agreements that are imposed by God that bind two parties together in permanent, defined relationship with specific promises, claims, and usually obligations on both sides. And it is through the structure of these solemn agreements, these covenants, that God chooses to reveal himself and relate to his people. And all throughout Scripture, from the opening chapters of Genesis all the way into the New Testament, when God chooses to make relationship with a certain people, it is always, always through this structure of covenant, this, this special agreement made between two parties that binds them together. And so that means that the main purpose, the sole main purpose of a covenant is to create an intimate bond, to create an intimate bond, to create a relationship between God and his people. And so even though there are several covenants found within scripture, and even though these covenants occur in various forms, every single one of them has one unchangeable and essential element to all of them, one eternal promise that unites all of the biblical covenants together. 
And that is when God chooses to make a covenant, he makes the promise, borrowing from the words of Jeremiah 31, 33, and elsewhere, I will be their God, and they will be my people. That is the relational promise that is at the heart of all biblical covenants. God is saying to those he is covenanting with that I am to be your God, me, me alone, and you exclusively will be my people. And we are to enter into this deep and loving relationship with one another. And this relationship, as noted by Packer, is defined. It's a defined relationship. And it is defined with obligations and promises on either side. Now, an area of division between modern contracts and and biblical covenants, which are often kind of compared with one another, is that contracts are made between equals. They're made between equals, between human beings. And the promises and obligations within them, for the most part, can be negotiated. But covenants, on the other hand, are not that way. Biblical covenants are not promises and obligations agreed upon by equals. In every biblical covenant, it is the God of the universe alone who sets the terms. There's no negotiating. You do not see Abraham, Moses, or David going back and forth on the details with God with the covenant in terms of the covenant that he's making with them. You don't see that. It is God alone who sets the standards. Now, one phrase that that may have caught your interest as I was reading the definition of a covenant by J.I. Packer is that these covenants are imposed by God. That that word imposed is a, a little scary. It's imposed by God. But this is a very important point because it speaks to the grace of God. It speaks to the grace of God. You see, it is not man that chooses to come into relationship with God. Man, in his natural state, never chooses that. No. It is God. It is God who chooses, out of his grace and mercy and love, to willingly come into relationship with man. Not the other way around. You see, God was under no obligation None whatsoever to come into relationship with mankind after he created him. He could have created mankind and then just just stepped back and let us live without him. He was under no moral obligation to come into relationship with Adam and Eve, or with Abraham, or with Moses, or Israel, or David, or the disciples, or Paul, or you and I. No moral obligation whatsoever. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? Do do you get that? The only reason that we exist as a church right now is because God, out of his love and mercy, he chose to covenant with us. That's the only reason. He freely chose to divinely impose covenants with his beloved people. Man could never have hoped to come into relationship, to be in relationship with God, unless God chose to covenant with us first. And this truth is plainly said to us in John 4.10. What's that say? We love because, and only because, God loved us first. 
So again, a covenant is a solemn agreement that is imposed by God that binds two parties together in permanent, defined relationship with specific promises, claims, and obligations on both sides. And it is a grace. It is a mercy. Now that we have that working definition, it's also important to know that, that the covenants found within Scripture are, are typically split into two overarching categories. The first of which is called the covenant of works. The covenant of works. And the second, the covenant of grace. Now the covenant of grace is actually made up of several smaller covenants that are all unified together with one grand purpose that is, that is kind of progressively revealed bit by bit as God's plan of redemption unfolds throughout history. But before we break down what that means, before we get into the covenant of grace, let's first take a look at the covenant of works. Now, the covenant of works is actually the very first covenant that we come across in Scripture. It even comes before the covenant God made with Noah and creation in Genesis 9 and is actually found in Genesis chapter 2. It is found within the context of the Garden of Eden. And this covenant is made between God and Adam. Now, when you open up your Bibles and you, and you flip to Genesis 2, you may see, or you will see, rather, that there is no use of the term covenant. It's not in there. It's not used. However, biblical scholars and theologians will be quick to point out that all, all of the essential elements of a biblical covenant are present. Take a look at verses 15 through 17 of Genesis 2. After God had created Adam and, and after he breathed life into his lungs, he didn't just leave Adam alone, did he? No. He established relationship with him. And in verses 15 through 17, he sets the terms of that relationship using what? Using covenantal language. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so the promise that is inferred from these verses is that if Adam simply obeyed God's command and did not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he and Eve would continue an unbroken relationship with God and experience everlasting life because they would have access to the tree of life. Now, just, just a quick aside, many believe that the tree is not actually, the tree of life is not actually imbued with this, this magic power, but is actually the first sign, the, the sign of this first covenant of works, a sign of unhindered and intimate relationship with God if they just obeyed his commands, if they only just partake of his good fruits. And so the obligation is the obedience of Adam. And the promise is everlasting life and relationship with God. And God's obligation is fulfilling that promise. However, if Adam broke this covenant, and if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would experience the covenant curse 
of verse 17. You would experience death. Now, this covenant is called the covenant of works for a specific reason. You see, before the fall, we know that Adam and Eve had not experienced what? Sin. Therefore, Adam and Eve, they were, they were fundamentally different at that time than we are today. You see, they in the garden had the ability to not sin. They had the ability to not sin. And as we learned last week from Ethan, sin is rebellion against God. It is going against his commands. And it is, first and foremost, and fundamentally, at the base level, a heart issue. We go against God's commands because our hearts are sinful. But Adam and Eve had not yet been corrupted by sin in Genesis 2. And so therefore, they had the ability to obey God's commands perfectly. However, they also, if you turn the page over into Genesis 3, had the ability to sin. They had the ability to sin. And so let me, let me say all that together, because this is, this is key. This is important for us to understand. Adam and Eve had the ability to obey God perfectly. But they also had the ability to sin, to rebel. So the fulfillment of the obligations of this covenant rested on the works of Adam. If Adam did not fall to sin... If he chose to continue in perfect obedience to God, which he was able to do, then the covenant promise would be his. It would be his. But when Eve was tempted by the serpent, by Satan in Genesis 3, and when Adam also partook of the forbidden fruit in verse 6, they became covenant breakers. They fell to sin. They incurred the curse from breaking their covenant with God. And the details of that curse are listed in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. But the, but the summation of that curse is found, if you remember, in Genesis 2. And is what? It's death. Death. But not simply immediate physical death. That would eventually come as they, as they begin to grow old for the first time and eventually pass away. But it was also more than that. It was more than that. It was, it was a spiritual death. It was, it was the death of their union and communion with their Creator. And we were told in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that Adam represented all of humanity, all of humanity in that garden. And so when Adam broke the covenant with God, it is as if we all broke covenant with God. Therefore, the curse of that first covenant breaking through our first father, Adam, is still bestowed upon us today. We, too, are under the curse of sin and physical and spiritual death. And by nature, we are all, every single one of us, covenant breakers. We are sinners. Because in Adam, we, too, broke that first covenant of work. And now, my friends, we may be tempted to wonder why the punishment for this first covenant breaking was so severe. 
we may be tempted to wonder, why was the punishment that Adam and Eve incurred and that we incur because of Adam so severe? Why were they forced out of paradise? Why were they forced to, to grow old and experience disease and to wrestle with sin for the rest of their lives and, and to lose communion with God and to experience death in such a real and visceral way? All for what? All for what? Eating a little bit of fruit that they weren't supposed to? Oh, friends, if that is what we think, if that is what we truly think, then we have too small of a view of what sin, of what covenant breaking truly is. Because, my friends, it is not the severity of sin that matters, but it is the one against whom you are sinning against. Do you understand that? Do you, do you get that? And Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled, they broke covenant with, they thought they were better than the God of the universe, the great creator. And therefore, they were due an infinite punishment. It is not the severity of the sin. It is the one against whom you are sinning. I once heard a theologian who said that the real question is not why was the punishment for Adam and Eve so severe. It's not the real question. The real question is why wasn't it so much worse? Why were Adam and Eve not disintegrated into dust on the spot? And my friends, make no mistake. The answer to that question is grace. It's grace. The unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor and mercy and love of God. And even as God was bestowing the curse upon Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity, He reveals to them and He reveals to us His plan of redemption. He reveals the beginnings of His covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. Because even though mankind rebelled against God in vain attempts to become gods themselves, God still makes a promise. A promise to send a Savior who would come from the seed of the woman to bruise the head of the serpent, the enemy who represents and promotes all wickedness, all sin, and death. And this seed will crush that serpent's head. He would crush Satan, crush sin, and crush death, even at the cost of having his heel bruised. This is the first and overarching promise of what is called the covenant of grace. Now the covenant of grace, as I have said, can, can also be called the, the God's plan of redemption. You see, God was not content to leave all humankind estranged from himself without hope. And so through a series of covenants, God unfolds His plan to redeem, to, to save a chosen people, a beloved people. A people who were not chosen by God out of any merit or quality in themselves, for, the, for they were all covenant breakers. But a people chosen, as Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, clearly tells us, out of the good grace and love of God the Father. 
And while the promises of the covenant of works rested on the ability of Adam to keep the commandments of God, the promises made in the covenant of grace rest solely on the gracious faithfulness of God himself. And you see this clearly in the first major covenant in the covenant of grace, called the Abrahamic covenant. As one author says, no old covenant believer is more associated with the covenant of grace than the patriarch Abraham. This man, our father in faith, is the first to see that God will bring a great number of people into his holy kingdom. In the Lord's covenant with Abraham, we see clearly that God alone, God alone ensures the success of the covenant of grace. Because though Abraham who at the time was still named Abram, was a pagan, a worshiper of a false god. God chooses to set his love and affection on him. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord called Abram to serve him out of his grace, to call him into covenant with him. And though Abram had done nothing to deserve this favor from God, God makes a series of promises to him. He promises to give him land, to, to make him a great nation that will, that will make Abr- and that he will make Abram's name great and a, and a source of blessing, and that through him all of the families of the earth will be blessed. All wonderful, graceful promises. And then later in Genesis 15, this covenant God makes with Abram is further clarified when God promises a son to Abram even in his old age. And we are told that Abram, believing this promise, simply by believing this promise, having faith in the God of the covenants, is justified, is made righteous in God's sight. And this is, this is crucial. This is crucial. This righteousness bestowed upon Abraham is not because of any works that Abram had done, but by simply believing, by simply having faith in the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant promise. And to drive home God's faithfulness, to keep this covenant with Abram. As Abram's faith begins to waver because he had not yet received a son, God tells him to kill and cut up some animals and to lay their pieces side by side in two lines in order to form a pathway between them. And with this command, the Lord shows Abram a vital truth using ancient Near Eastern practice. You see, during the covenant-making ceremonies in Abram's day, the parties to the agreement would often slaughter animal and slaughter animals and then divide them in the way described in Genesis, or sorry, in uh, yeah, Genesis 15. And during the During these covenant-making ceremonies, they were to walk, both parties were to walk between the pieces to signify that they would meet the same fate if they broke their oaths. Now, when Abram kills the animals, he, he probably expects God to walk with him. For Abraham to also be assumed that he would walk through these pieces, to walk through these carcasses along with God to seal this covenant. But this is not what happens. And only a smoking pot and a flaming torch, which are visible manifestations of the Lord himself, passes between the animal parts. You see, God alone 
takes upon himself the covenant curse if he does not keep his promise to Abram. Because Abram, due to his sin nature, is unable to keep covenant with his imperfect obedience. And so God takes it upon himself to keep the covenant he makes with Abraham and fulfill the covenant promise by making a nation through him and through God's faithfulness to Abraham, whose name is now Abraham, by the way. Abraham receives the beginnings of that covenant a little further on by receiving the promised son, Isaac. And so what we are meant to see here is that the continuation and the keeping of the covenant of grace and the receiving of its promises rests on the faithfulness of God alone, not on the works of man. Now God's covenant of grace, his plan to redeem a people for himself, himself continues to be unveiled, to be unfolded in the Mosaic covenant, which is also called the Old Covenant, where we see the promises made to Abraham begin to be fulfilled as God creates a nation through Abraham's numerous descendants. And through that nation and the covenant that God makes with that nation, he will bless the world. The Mosaic Covenant is the covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel through his mediator, Moses. Now, the summation of this covenant can be found in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, where the nation of Israel, who is, who is freshly liberated from the tyranny of Egypt, is brought to the base of Mount Sinai. And God says to Moses to tell this to the people of Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, in this covenant, the obligations that God sets before his newly defined people that he has chosen to come into relationship with him is given in Exodus 20, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are the summation of the 613 laws that the nation of Israel is meant to keep. 613 laws. Now, if that sounds like an impossible task, you're absolutely right. It was absolutely impossible for the nation of Israel, a nation of men and women who are, like the rest of humanity, natural covenant breakers, to be justified, to be made righteous, to be saved from their sin through the obedience to this law. It's impossible. And so out of God's mercy... Out of God's love, he institutes a sacrificial system whereby the Israelite people would spill the blood of animals in order to cover their sins, to cover their disobedience. An innocent animal would receive the death that was due to a guilty people. And this had to be done in order to continue their covenant relationship with God. It was not optional. But this covering of sin was not meant to be permanent. And they would soon sin again and again. And more and more blood would be needed to cover their sin. It was never enough. But friends, this old covenant was not meant to last. You see, this covenant of grace, this old covenant, was simply meant to be a shadow of a better covenant of grace that would soon follow. 
This old covenant's purpose was to point the people of God to the fact that they could not keep the law of God perfectly. They could not keep up their end of the covenant. It was meant to point them to the fact that they were, they were in need of a better sacrifice that was to be offered by a better priest. It was meant to point them to the fact that they needed someone to keep the covenant obligations for them because they couldn't do it. This old covenant was meant to point them to the fact that they needed a greater covenant. And they needed a Messiah that would usher it in. And friends, this is so important for us. Because we cannot be saved by any law keeping. We cannot enter into a relationship with God by, by, just, doing, by just doing good things. We cannot and will not be saved by attempting to cover the stain of our own sins with the filthy rag of our good deeds. It doesn't work. If we have any hope in this world, we must, like the people of Israel in the Old Covenant, look to something greater. We must look to a once and for all sacrifice that is solely sufficient that is sufficient to wash us clean. We must look forward to a Messiah. We must look to a Messiah who can give us a new heart that has been breathed life into by God himself. We must look to the pinnacle of God's plan of redemption. We must look to what all previous covenants of grace were created to point us to and find their ultimate fulfillment in. We must look to the new covenant. We must look to the new covenant. And this new covenant was prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, by the way, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. They all know him from the last of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is the wonderful promise of the new covenant. And this new covenant is officially instituted by the Word made flesh, by the God-man, by Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God in the upper room, when, in Luke 22, 15 through 20, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, this cup that is poured out for you 
is the new covenant in my blood. And then on the next day, on the cross, Jesus ratified, Jesus sealed that new covenant with his blood and with his death. When he took upon himself the covenant curse that, that we acquired, that we acquired because of our sin, because of our covenant breaking. You see, this new covenant had the same obligations as the old covenant. And those obligations were perfect obedience to the Father. But my friends, the covenants of grace, remember, were never about the obedience of those whom God chose to covenant with. It was all about trusting in the faithfulness of God to, to fulfill the promises that he made. And he promised to send the Messiah who would defeat sin and death and save his beloved people. And he kept those promises. He kept them. He kept them as Jesus stepped down from his throne of grace and representing his people fulfilled every single obligations of the previous covenant, of the covenant of grace, of the old covenant, of the covenant of works in perfect obedience, in living in perfect obedience to the Father on our behalf. And he then further fulfilled his promise by being the perfect sacrifice, the perfect, spotless, innocent lamb who died a once and for all death to wash away for all time, not just temporarily, not just for a moment, but for eternity, to wash away for eternity the sins of his people. This is why Hebrews 8 tells us that this new covenant, which was the purpose of Christ's ministry on earth, is far better, far better than the old and that the old has now faded away because their promises have been completed in Christ. The faithfulness of God is undeniable. And brothers and sisters, if you are a true believer in this room, that means that you have entered into this new covenant. How amazing is that? And so when you think of your relationship with God, you must think of it in terms of a covenantal relationship. You are in a covenant relationship with God. And Ephesians 1.4 says that He, in Christ, chose, freely chose, to covenant with you specifically, believer. With you specifically. He had you in mind before the foundations of the world were even set, and He chose to covenant with you. He chose to set his affections on you and enter into the most joyous, into the most wonderful and loving relationship with you and adopt you into his covenantal family, his church. And not based on any works that you do, but simply out of his good pleasure and grace. What's so beautiful about being in the new covenant family is that the promises God has made to you in this new covenant are not based on your performance. They can't be. Christ has already kept the obligations for you and the new covenant promises that are His inheritance, that are His rightful inheritance, now belong to you through your union with Him. Praise God. And the promises of this new covenant that you are now in are beyond comparison. These are the promises. Just, just let me rattle these off real quick. 
They are a new heart, Jeremiah 31. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who seals our salvation, who keeps us in covenant with Him, Ephesians 1.13. It is deliverance from the guilt and shame of sin as covenant breakers, Romans 8.1. They are the promises of a new and resurrected body that will not perish or grow old or weary, 1 Corinthians 15. They are the promises of reigning as co-heirs with Christ on the renewed earth that is still to come. Romans 8 and Revelation 21. Those are our promises, and they will be ours. God is faithful. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, do you understand your place in the fulfillment of God's covenant promises? You, church, are the outworking of His faithfulness to the promises that He made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses and David. You're the fulfillment of all those promises. And does that not fill you with hope? Does that not fill you with hope that God will see through to the end the covenant that He has made with you? Our God is a God of covenants who is faithful to fulfill His covenant promises. Let us pray. God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for, for the biblical definition of grace, Lord, that you have poured out your mercy and love upon us, even though we do not deserve it. God, you have chosen us as your covenant people, not based on any, any good works that we've done, because we have none, but simply out of your love. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you keep us close. That you remind us day in and day out that you love us with a covenantal love that can never be broken because, Lord, this new covenant is not based on, on what we do, but it is based on what you have already done. So, Lord, I pray that you strengthen our faith in that. Father, we love you. Help us learn to love you even more. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.